So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because you know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. Many of you may remember hearing a lot about the opioid crisis before the time of COVID-19. Opioids were one of the leading causes of injury-related deaths in America. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, almost 450,000 people died from opioid overdoses between 1999 and 2018. So has the opioid crisis just resolved or has it become the forgotten epidemic? The American Medical Association released an issue brief in May that noted their concerns that state and local media were reporting an increase in opioid-related deaths. Also, a study conducted by the Wellbeing Trust predicted during COVID-19, approximately 27,000 to 154,000 Americans may die from drug and alcohol abuse or suicide. It appears that the opioid crisis is still very much alive. On today's show, we will discuss the seemingly forgotten opioid epidemic, how people get addicted to drugs, and effective substance use treatment. This brings us to our guest, Dr. Craig Henderson. Dr. Henderson is a professor of psychology at Sam Houston State University and a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Texas. He has conducted research on adolescent and emerging adult behaviors and substance use treatment for 20 years. Just on this topic alone, he has been an author in approximately 100 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters and has been involved in 16 grant-supported research projects, many funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Association. Now let's get to the interview. Welcome, everybody, to Sandy Podcast. Um, Craig, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, you're, you're welcome, Jason. I, I'm, it's good to see you. Uh, spent some good years together at uh, mm-hmm. Sam Houston State University, and um, I, I'm you know, just really thrilled to hear all that you've got going on. And so, um, and I got to tell you, man, this is a, a first for me. I've never been a podcast uh, uh, guest. So yep. um, I, I, I hope I don't let you down. <laughs> well, let's be honest, it's the first time for me too. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, you know, I've just been seeing, you know, a bit in the news about this opioid crisis and substance abuse and, you know, hearing about people drinking more, smoking more, doing other drugs. And so when I was thinking about, you know, what do people want to hear uh, during, you know, this COVID situation, substance abuse popped in my mind. And then when I thought of that, I said, who better than Craig Henderson? You know, because this is something that you've been doing for researching for a very long time. Well, th- thank you, Jason. Yeah, it, it's it's been on my mind a lot, too. I, I, I And, you know, I, I'm reading and keeping up. And um, uh, unfortunately, the uh, the news is not good. Um, it seems like I, actually uh, Daily Beast did a really nice article. Um, it, it, it was it's called something like the twin pandemics. And hmm. um, uh, recently read that. I think it came out sometime last week. But it, it's got me thinking even more. Um, we, we, you know, of course, everyone has everyone's minds on on COVID. You know, it's mm-hmm. impact, impacting all of our daily lives. Uh, and at the same time, you know, for people who have uh, things like, particularly, uh, the article was focused on opioid addictions. I mean, that never w- went anywhere. So, h- how does the how, how do these two pandemics uh, really interface with each other and we're, we're seeing that they do. And I think this article does a nice job of, of laying out in, in which ways it does. Yeah. And, and before jumping into the, the opioid epidemic, you, you know, specifically in people with substance use disorders, I was just wondering, you know, if we could talk a little bit more generally on your opinion on how the stresses with uh, the COVID situation is impacting everyday people and their substance use, um, you know, the reasons, reasons for it, and maybe some ways that, uh, that you've been recommending to patients or supervisees on how people could cope better so they don't have to rely on substances to get through this. 
Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, I think uh, one one of the big issues, and we're all facing it, is um, uh, social isolation. There, there mm. is a cost, and and you, I mean, everyone is connecting through um, internet. I, I mean, I, I wish I bought uh, stock options in Zoom a year <laughs> or two ago, <laughs> just uh, uh, you know, because that is the new place where people meet. Um, but it, it's just not the same. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm actually uh, uh, recording this in my workplace in, in a break room. I, I thought I'd be the only person up here, but I've seen a couple people and someone just comes in and wa- says, wow, it's nice to see a real person. <laughs> and, you know, in, in ways it is, you know, and, and I've, I've had the opposite effect uh like where i'm watching a a television show like something on netflix or something like that and people are hugging they're shaking hands and it's like whoa you aren't supposed to be doing that (laughs) so um and and these kind of you know these social norms have been disrupted in huge ways and i think that isolation has uh has a real cost um in terms, so that, that, that's one of the, the big ways, uh, you know, um, let, let, let me think of some other ways it could be. Yeah, and, and I was also it. thinking, you know, like the economic um, you know, people, struggles that people are getting, getting into, people are worried about their money. Um, also people with kids, uh, parenting, they're now the teacher and they're expected to work a full-time job or they're not working and they have to supply, you know, their, their kids. Um, you know, so the, the economic toll of this must be, must also right. be increasing people's anxiety and also just the uncertainty of our future. Uh, as we know, in sci- being psychologists, that uncertainty breeds anxiety. And, uh, for most yeah. of us, I would imagine this is one of the most uncertain times that many of us have ever been through. That's right. Yeah. It was a real eye opener to me. You know, I, I, I was, uh, I, I'm a, Proud Gen Xer, <laughs> uh, graduated from high school in 1987, born in 1969, and um, you know, so so a couple of things have, have really hit me. I, I mean, one was that th- this uh, COVID that we're we're living through is going to impact my kids much more than you know, probably anything in their lifetimes, you know, um, and, and the particular eye opener is this is much more real to them than 9-11 was, which was mm. a, a real marker for me, probably for you as well. Um, another thing, uh, you know, so my son is a uh, sophomore in college. Okay. So um, he has now lived through um he, he was born when 9-11 happened. He uh, lived through our previous economic crisis, you know, the uh, 2008 through 2010, the bursting of the housing bubble and that's impact. And, and, and now uh, COVID. And, mm-hmm. you know, for these, you know, like 18 to 25-ish year old people, th- these are, you know, these they're impacted and we're, we're, you know, maybe they weren't so aware just because they were younger when um, uh, the the housing bubble burst, but those things are going to impact their families, you know, and and we all are shaped in in big ways by the interactions that we have uh, uh, with our family. Um, And also notable about that particular age group, say 18 through 25 or so, um, the onset of substance use disorders is typically in those teenage to young adult years. Um, mm. If you get past those without developing a substance use disorder, chances are you aren't going to jo- uh, develop one in your lifetime. So, you know, a number of people, um, w- one of the leading adolescent substance use researchers, uh, Mike Dennis, ha- has referred to these as adolescent uh, or substance use disorders that are just chronic disorders with an adolescent onset. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's a great point. And I think so, that's a yes, huge thing for the, people to uh, know. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I was saying, like, I think it's a huge thing for people to know that if you don't become right, uh, right, a substance right. so, abuser in your teens, that you're that you're protected into adulthood, and so it's a really sensitive developmental area uh, for this. Well, it, it is. I mean, and it's protective. I mean, some people, um, and if we're talking about opioids in particular, you're talking about a large group of people who developed substance use disorders outside of those adolescent years. So, you know, mm-hmm. age is protective. Um, at, at the same time, I, I mean, it's not an on-off switch, you know, okay, you made 25, you're never going to develop this. Sure, you know? sure. So, um, uh yeah, and going back to your point about the um, and, and I forgot the phrasing that that you that you exactly said, but that idea about the co the co epidemics happening at the same time and how they're mm-hmm. how they're merging. Um, you know, from your understanding, how do you see uh, COVID nineteen impacting the opioid epidemic? Okay, you mentioned the economic situation. Mm-hmm. You know, this is hugely impacted millions of people's lives, um, and 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 we see it, you know, playing out every day about you know. Uh, disputes and arguments about, you know, should we, you know, stay put until yeah. uh, things are more safe? I mean, should we reopen? I, so, uh, but the, the, so the stimulus overall is a good thing. One thing we have to think about with the stimulus is, uh, you know, people are getting cash back, you know, if someone has a drug problem, where is that money potentially going to go? Um, and, and there are other ways in which uh, it, it, you know, can impact it as well. Supply lines are—it's uh, more difficult to get um, uh, op- opioids into um, into the country. So the supply lines are. Are disrupted, so that overall is a, a good thing, I think. Um, but there are, uh, you know, unintended consequences or, or unforeseen consequences in that uh, as well. Um, if you increase, so decrease supply, the the cost is going to go up. And so, if you have people who maybe, um, you know, their their livelihood has been disrupted. Uh, they still have uh, a, a need for these uh, drugs. Well, wh- where are they going to go? It's probably going to be from some, you know, illegal kind of means, uh, you know, to be able to get the money to purchase uh, the drugs. Um, another thing that, that uh, another unforeseen consequence of, of this is maybe the supply lines. Um, I, I even saw that uh, one of the main um, uh, manufacturers of uh, one of the chemicals that goes into fentanyl is located in Wuhan, China. Okay. Oh. And that, yeah, yeah. So um, it, it closed down about a year ago. And just so, um, you know, people might not be familiar with fentanyl. Do you mind just describing uh, what it is and, and what it's used for? Yeah, so it's uh, uh, what, what's called a synthetic opioid. So an opiate, A-T-E, is a naturally occurring, uh, you know, um, opioid. Uh, you know, wh- what you would get like from a opium poppy, you know, uh, heroin, you know, old, if you're going old school opium itself opioids are synthetically made. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- those are, you know, human made, uh, chemicals that, um, uh, are, are designed to have the same chemical properties as these opiates. So fentanyl is a synthetic opioid designed to, uh, mimic the, uh, effects of heroin. The point I, I was making earlier is in terms of unforeseen consequences, okay, supply lines are disrupted. Maybe people are making a less pure product now. You know, mm. there's less opiates going into what's in distribution now, okay? Well, what happens when those supply lines are opened up again? Well, people buying what they're used to using, maybe getting a more pure uh, substance, you know, that has 
a higher co uh, concentration of opioids in it. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, we may be seeing more overdoses as a result. And, I, and I'm just thinking that um, not even that, uh, you know, they might get, be cut with something if there's low supplies right. and people don't mm -hmm. know what they're going to be using that it's cut with, whether it's, uh, you know, a psychoactive substance or something else that could be toxic for the body. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and that is part of what the danger is with these synthetic compounds is we don't know exactly what is in them. And, you know, it's not just the overall level. Sometimes with uh, fentanyl uh, overdoses and deaths, it's because just some bad substances were in there. So yeah, and, and what and, you it know, is mixed with. And this uh, leads me to, to a question of like, what is the, the, the trajectory? And actually somebody asked me, they said, okay, so you just start taking opioids. Are you just going to die? Like, how does that work? Like, what is the usual uh, trajectory of how it goes from misuse into potential overdose? Or is there a, a typical trajectory? There is a, a typical trajectory. Um, with, with opioid use, we're, we're, we're still learning a lot of what we call the developmental psychopathology of that. Basically, that's a fancy term that means the way a um, uh, psychological or psychiatric disorder develops. You know, I had mentioned earlier how substance use disorders have an adolescent onset. Um, just an a interesting fact there, too. What we're seeing is those who start using earlier actually have, tend to have more uh, severe problems and more chronic problems overall. So age is a really important uh, piece there. So in terms of we're still learning. Uh, so we know how substance use disorders in general develop. Um, we're still learning a lot about opioid use. Um, you know, a, a lot of that you know, the, the generation came from over-prescription of, um, of opioids uh, with, with a, in, in most cases, a, a uh, unawareness of the impact that uh, these would have on people's lives, um, a uh, belief that was held to in the medical community that, um, uh, people would not develop uh, dependence if these were used um, uh, for, you know, legitimate, um, you know, physiological reasons. Um, and, and so that that's what we, you know, that that is one of the big um, initiators of uh you know, the opioid uh, use problem in this country. We're still learning how people, um, you know, get off of these drugs. Uh, you know, it is most of the time through treatment. Um, you know, going to cold turkey is a, you know, quitting altogether is a very, very difficult uh, process. Um, you know, the body is physiologically dependent on these drugs. Um, it is, uh, you know, pretty extreme biological reactions can cause um, extreme amounts of anxiety. Um, and so it's usually through some kind of intervention that people do uh, recover. And just to get a sense of the addiction and the withdrawal, where, where does this stand like in, in severity compared to maybe some other drugs where it comes to how addictive it is and how bad the withdrawal is? is so the two main drugs where the body develops a genuine physical dependence on um, are going to be uh, alcohol and mm. uh, opioids or opiates. Um, so other types of drugs are, are not going to have the same kind of physiological uh, impact where the body, you know, becomes dependent on those. With alcohol, you can, you know, literally die uh, without, you know, uh, you know, having it in your system. Um, opioids are, you know, it, it generally it, it, you will not die from not having them in your system, but it's a very miserable process to uh, mm -hmm. come off of them. 
And so that, that's why the uh, treatments that are most effective are going to be what's called medication-assisted treatments or MAT. Um, three main groups of those, uh, there's methadone, uh, buprenorphine, and uh, naltroxone are um, uh, drugs that have been developed. These are synthetic chemicals, but what they um, are able to do is to uh, produce a similar impact as opioids, but a, a lower, um, less potency. And so it, it can keep someone um, from having those uh, extreme physio physiological and psychological reactions from coming off, um, but also um, deters some of the problematic behaviors in, in terms of, um, uh, you know, criminal activity and things that are uh, associated with it. So, so um, it's almost like know, how when people are trying to quit smoking, they have the nicotine gum packs with a decreasing amount of nicotine and hopefully at the exactly. end it will slowly lower and you could, you could get off. Right. That's a really good anal analogy. Yep. Okay. Um, and on the, the psychological side, you know, this is where, where your expertise uh, truly lies. Um, what, what are the latest treatments to get people, people help for this? So for opioid use disorder? Mm -hmm. Or substance use disorder uh, in general and opioid use, use disorders. Okay, yeah, because it, it's a bit different. Let, let's start with opioid use disorders. Really, um, the only uh, research-supported treatment for opioid use disorders is going to be medication-assisted treatment. So that has to be a part of that. Now, that medication-assisted treatment... Um, I mean, that, that's not everything in itself, okay? Mm -hmm. So that, that helps keep a person, you know, kind of physiologically in line, um, helps them manage their, their lives more effectively. But counseling is a big part of this as well. So okay. uh, one thing that I, I, I'm really excited about, and um, it looks like I'll have some opportunity to uh, get involved with some colleagues in providing um, family based treatments uh, for young people, say ages between 16 and 25, getting um, uh, medication assisted treatment and involving families in that process. Um, that, that's something that has not been um, really uh, developed to any great extent. And, and there's a lot of potential for this type of work because what we see in terms of um, just substance use disorders in general, the family involvement in treatment is hugely uh, impactful and related to success. So um, there's a recent meta-analysis. Uh, a meta-analysis is basically combining the results from a large number of studies. And what was shown in this meta-analysis was that involving families in treatment had a meaningful um, impact above individual treatment, okay? So here mm -hmm. we're comparing not just family treatment against a control group of no treatment or some kind of placebo of just like giving someone attention or something like this. We're talking about an active individual treatment and still the family treatment. Uh, adding the family component is uh, adding improvement on top of what you would get with the individual treatment. So, um, so th this is really uh, exciting. Hope we uh, have the opportunity to do some of this work. Um, and is it you know, too early in, in sense, or do we know why adding the family members is more effective than just the traditional, just, you know, therapist, patient uh, ther type of therapy? Yeah, that's a really good question. Okay. So th there are a number of reasons why, I mean, you know, families generally are going to be our, our um, you know, hugest sources of support. Uh, they can also be our, you know, one of our biggest stressors. So when things are managed, you know, family relationships are good. It generally keeps people, you know, healthier, happier. Hmm. Um, if someone's prone to anxiety or depression, it helps, you know, minimize those types of uh, issues. So that, you know, the, the, support, um, the well-being that comes from having strong relationships. Um, 
you know, the help that, that, that we get, um, you know, you mentioned early on, like with the COVID stuff about uh, kids who are now, I mean, families who are thrown into being, um, you know, homeschooling their kids on top of everything else. You know? yeah. So, um, I mean, there's those, those kind of family supports. Um, and um, if we're talking about, again, going back to young people, adolescent age, that's a really formative time of development and families that are able to maintain healthy lines of communication and be able to talk with, you know, their adolescent sons and daughters, adolescent children about, you know, the difficult things that they're going through in their lives, like, you know, peers who are using drugs. It's really um, an, an important uh, mechanism in that pro a protective mechanism, meaning, you know, protective being less likelihood of developing problems. Um, also, if we're talking about young people, there's the issue of uh, family togetherness and family awareness of what types of activities their kids are involved with and, you know, the type of peers they have. So that also is a, another way where uh, family relationships is, are impactful. So um, those, the family-based treatments are really, you know, the research has shown, and I, I, I've been involved, I, I've written a, a number of review articles uh, with colleagues that are showing that the family-based treatments really have the strongest evidence of support um, uh, for treatment of substance use uh, disorders in general. So including adolescents and adults? Uh, yes, yes, particularly with adolescents, but with adults, um, there's some really interesting work. Uh, Barbara McCready at uh, University of New Mexico has done with um, uh, adolescents, uh, excuse me, uh, adult uh, couples, uh, married couples, uh, and alcohol use uh, disorders. Um, there is a uh, treatment developed also by uh, researchers at the University of New Mexico called CRAFT, which involves, um, you know, helping a, 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 an involved and supportive other in someone's treatment that has a really strong um, uh, evidence of success. So, yeah, it, it helps both. And with, with adolescence, is there something about the developmental period or do we know uh, that makes it that so much more of a chronic condition if it starts, you know, earlier and it has a, has a worse trajectory or do we just not know that yet? Uh, I, I think we do know it. Um, it, it uh, it's getting a little bit outside my specific area of uh, expertise, but um, I could put you in touch with people who uh, study the uh, physiology, the neurophysiology more. But um, you know that that's what makes it a, a sensitive period as well. Is the brain is still developing in those mm -hmm. teenage years? Okay, so it's not until roughly around the age of twenty-five where the um, uh, frontal lobes of the brain fully develop, and those are going to be very important in terms of you know planning, organizing, directing our behavior, but also in, in terms of um, uh, the ability to inhibit impulses and things yeah. like this. Okay. And then psychologically or, or just more, um, um, outside of biology, is there things like peer pressure with adolescents or trying to fit in more adolescent sex or anything like that, that makes them more predisposed yeah. just to being pulled into it than, than I'm, adult, I'm, you know? I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Cause that, that is going to be hugely important. And it's those years, um, one of the uh, foremost uh, adolescent researchers, actually internationally, is a person by the name of Lawrence Steinberg. He's at Temple University. Um, but he has uh, shown in a number of studies how adolescents are more susceptible to peer influence than at any age of the lifespan. Um, so, uh, and uh, another thing is that, um, uh, young people are involved in uh, a number of different systems. So like school, if, the, you know, having problems in school puts adolescents at risk for substance use, it's not just their peers. It can just be, you know, difficulties in the school environment uh, itself. Um, uh, so that, that's another uh, source by which what makes adolescents particularly vulnerable.
Yeah. And then just thinking about, you know, going back to that, the, the COVID situation, you know, just psychologists in general are worried about people becoming more depressed and anxious. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of different reasons why people become more uh, depressed and anxious during these times. Um, I, I'm assuming that there's some sort of link between depression, anxiety and, and substance use, or is it the other way around? How does that work? There is. Um, actually, we have a, a book chapter coming out in a edited volume. Um, uh, one of my uh, doctoral students led the development of the uh, chapter, did a, a really nice job with it. But he lays out uh, three or four main pathways by which people, um, young people develop uh, substance use disorders. One is um, externalizing pathway. And, you know, with this, you can think of someone who is uh, genetically and temperamentally maybe predisposed to uh, problems with impulse control uh, mm. and, and sensation seeking. Um, so that is just more... Uh, has a larger impact as them as an individual than others. Uh, So that's one way in which people uh, um, enter. Another is called an internalizing pathway and internalizing, uh, you know, think about things like anxiety and depression are uh, classic internalizing type of behaviors. And some people can uh, get into it that way with using drugs to be able to diminish the impact of anxiety and uh, depression. Um, a third pathway is um, contextual pathway. This is where uh, families, peers, uh, neighborhoods, people grow up in have an impact, and those can all shape. There, there's no one specific pathway in. The substance mm-hmm. use, all of these things kind of come together in complicated ways. And, you know, the corollary to that, though, is there's no specific way out of them. So uh, there are a number of ways by which people, you know, can come out of um, substance use disorders as well. So um, one thing that's kind of encouraging about this research is uh, you know, even though people may have to get treatment on a number of occasions, the treatment is effective. You know, it, it seems to have a, um, th- there's something like a potentiating or carryover effect from each time someone seeks treatment that, um, you know, eventually leads to recovery. Um, you know, time is a, a you know, the, there's the, uh, um, the phrase, the time is healer of all r- wounds. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, certainly true when we're talking about substance disorders too. People tend to age out of those, even, you know, those with pretty severe uh, problems, you know, 50s and 60s, people tend to age out of those. Now, that's a long time to wait. And I don't yeah. uh, uh, advocate waiting from teenage to 60 years old because there are treatments that work. Um, uh, but you know, a, a number of people uh, do recover without getting into treatment. And, and how effective are we finding, um, you know, the, the current treatments? Uh, they're actually quite effective. So um, they have, um, you know, effect size as a way of measuring the impact a particular intervention has on changing a disorder. They, uh, treatments are now in the effect size of um, a, uh, this is kind of technical, but like 0.4 to half a standard deviation. And in this area of research, that's a very meaningful result. So um, uh, there are a number of um, treatments that really have been developed through uh, many years of research support. I've been involved with some of the um, uh, development and testing of family-based treatments, a particular treatment called multidimensional family therapy that has a strong record of uh, success. There are others like that. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapies uh, tend to be uh, strong. Um, there is a uh, motivational interviewing 
when it's combined with something called motivational enhancement therapy, has had really strong track records. So these are um, specific treatments that are specifically developed uh, by researchers for treating uh, adolescent substance use. And all of these, you know, I and my colleagues have shown, you know, all of these are well-supported interventions. Um, but what we're also seeing, and um, this is kind of a, a newer line of research, is, you know, the, one of the problems is these name brand types of therapies aren't being used in a lot of um, just, you know, the treatment center in your community, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, because there's, um, they, they tend to be kind of expensive to uh, um, uh, get staff trained in. There tends to be some o um, overturn in terms of the staff. So it, it, it's difficult to, um, you know, treatment agencies face some difficulties in um, being able to uh, maintain continuity. Now, some of them do it just great. I, I've... Um, you know, uh, multidimensional family therapy or MDFT again, uh, there have been treatment agencies across the United States, uh, some in Europe who have been doing this for a number of years, but that's still kind of a drop in the bucket compared to the number of treatment agencies that are, you know, involved in the uh, United States in general, if not internationally. What we're seeing is that there are ways that, um, you know, specific practices that can be done in places where they might not have um, this type of specific training to improve what they're doing. One of the main ways we were talking about it earlier is involving families in treatment. So uh, that that's a, a practice that tends to um, lead to better results uh, wherever you're doing it. Uh, just to give people a sense of if they know somebody or they themselves might want to go for treatment because they're struggling with substances, uh, you, you named three you know, very specific therapies. Could you just go over what to expect if they were, like, what does that treatment even look like? You know, the, the, the family approach, the CBT approach, and the motivational interviewing approach. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Let, let's talk about each of those. So a family approach, what it will now, there, there are variations on this kind of thing, but, um, you know, as the name implies, families are going to be uh, involved in treatment. These types of approaches usually, you know, if you, um, and each one of these, there is some standardization where uh, providers can get, um, use a treatment manual that basically walks them through um, how to do this type of uh, work through a treatment episode. So in, in family therapies, um, it's going to involve uh, 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 some time basically getting to know each other, building rapport. Therapists needs to form relationships with both adolescents and parents, which can be a challenge. Um, there will be some time that's spent on helping them communicate more effectively and solve problems together. Um, a lot of those, it, now it, it kind of depends on what approach we're talking about. Some of these family therapies really, uh, advocate for having all family members together in all sessions. Some are more flexible, like they might, you know, therapists might meet with the adolescent alone, might meet, uh, with the parents alone, then bring them together for a specific family session. Um, generally, these are also known as family systems treatments. So uh, therapists in these type of treatments are generally working with external systems, so like schools, uh, justice systems and courts, if, you know, the kids are involved in those. So, um, you know, usually it's about three to four months uh, weekly sessions, uh, I would say. And, and some of those involving just the adolescent, some involving the entire family. Some may involve the parents, and you know, uh, depending on some situations, uh, the parents and themselves might have some um, uh, substance use problems. And so then an important part of the uh, treatment is getting the parents into uh, treatment somewhere. So they're getting help for their issues at the same time. 
And what is the um, mechanism of change in that, in that therapy? Is it the problem solving and the better communication? So they figure out ways to get around, like what sorts of things are they actually working on in these sessions? So the, the, the better relationships, the having the more functional uh, um, communication around difficult subjects like substance use and um, as you repair relationships, having parents more involved in, in their kids' lives. Lives. And, you know, when you are able to build a more trusting and um, warm uh, parent relationship, usually adolescents are more into um, having their parents know about more about what they're doing. You know, they can hmm. see that this is actually good for them and there's less resentment involved in that when the relationship um, is healed to some extent. So, um, so, so those seem to be the, the better relationships in general being able to have good communication around difficult subjects and having parents more, more uh, involved in, in, you know, what's happening with their kids' lives day to day. And then how about uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? How, how would that sort of treatment approach work? Yeah, so CBT, I, I mean, that, that's something, the, the word is uh, out in, in terms of the effectiveness of CBT. Um, and in fact, I, I hear it, you know, I, I actually listen to podcasts like, this one uh, mm -hmm. quite a bit. Um, and so people are getting more and more aware of it. What CBT has to do with helping people become more aware about their own thinking about their problems. Um, there's a lot of things that we tend to, you know, thinking errors, so to speak, um, that, that we tend to get, uh, all of us have a tendency to, to get into. Um, uh, you know, things like, you know, blowing problems out of proportion, uh, personalizing things that we may not need to, um, all or nothing types of thinking. I mean, these are things that are known as, as uh, thinking errors. And so in therapy, helping people to become more aware of the uh, types uh, of thinking that they have around, particularly something like uh, substance use or, you know, things like uh, you, you could apply this also in terms of how a kid uh, thinks about their peer relationships, uh, things like this. I mean, you, you know a great deal about uh, uh, CBT uh, actually and, um, you know, could probably add quite a bit to that. Uh, I mean, yes, yeah, CBT in generally, CBT and substance abuse isn't, isn't, um, one of, one of my, my main specialties, but yeah, no, I think you hit it on the head. The way that we think about situations, um, impacts how we feel, behave and, and just generally, um, react. And so it sounds like what you're saying related to substance abuse, that if we could overall decrease different types of negative thinkings and people are coping better and they're thinking about drugs, um, in, in a different way rather than being their mechanism for handling things or seeing how it's impacting their life, uh, they would then make adaptive change. They would make positive change in their life because they're feeling better emotionally and they have a different uh, view system on what the drug use actually does. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also changing some of their behaviors. So I, I did a treatment study. Um, uh, it, it was published in uh, American Journal on Addictions, uh, 2016, I think. Um, but uh, this, this was a, a we, we did this in a uh, local uh, juvenile probation department uh, using mm -hmm. a, a treatment called the Adolescent Community Reinforcement Approach. And the idea behind that is to get um, uh, young people engaged in, in pro-social types of activities. And, and this was kind of individualized. I mean, these kids had different interests and things like that, but the therapist would work really hard with them to develop those interests and, um, uh, you know, find ways that they could spend time doing th these things, find ways that their families could support them in that and maybe get involved. And so getting involved in these pro-social types of activities really kind of took their attention away from, um, you know, the drug use and, you know, the context uh, in which it occurred, like the, the peers they were using with and stuff like that. So yeah. it's both of those things. And it kind of goes with that adage with kids. You can't just tell them what not to do. You should help them figure out yes. what to do instead. And, and sort of the same, same thing here. Like it's not just don't use drugs, but what can you do instead to help yourself feel good? That's more healthy and adaptive and hopefully promotes, you know, a better life outcome and, and more development. 
Absolutely. I'll, I'll use a personal example sure. there. I've got a 15-year-old daughter at home, okay? It works a lot better when I'm saying, hey, let, let's do something together. Let's do these things. Then, um, you know, let, let's go for a walk together. You know, let, let, let me hear you. She, she enjoys playing the guitar and piano. Let, let me hear you play your music. It works a lot better uh, to engage her in these type of things than to just say, you know, you're spending too much time in your room. You need to get out more. <laughs> or you're spending too much time on your phone. Stop it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You have to give them an alternative to do. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, as cognitive behavioral therapy implies, it's both the ways that we think, but also the ways that we're, uh, the things that we're doing and behaving. Uh, motivational enhancement therapy and motivational mm-hmm. interviewing. The, um, the, these tend to be briefer types of treatments. They tend to occur together. Uh, basically, therapists. So um, one of the main assumptions. I, I mean, you, you tell me what what's a, a change that you made in your life? Um, any big change that you made? Yeah, I mean, big changes that I've made have been uh, moving. Uh, I shifted uh, professions. As you probably know, I was a a forensic psychologist and I I changed trajectories uh, to become a therapist. But most recently, uh, I had gained uh, about 15 pounds during quarantine. So a big change that I made was uh, food logging, healthier food choices. And I'm happy to say that I've lost 10 of the the 15 pounds. So you know, a lot, lot of changes over time. Yeah. Good for you, man. Well, I mean, weight loss is a, a, a really good example because I, I mean, you know, I, I've lost a, yes. quite a bit of weight myself and, and um, you know, I, I thought, I mean, there was a long period of me thinking, you know, I got to do something about this before I ever did anything. Okay. There, so we have this natural, when we make a big change of behavior, it, it ambivalence is inherent in it. We both want to change and we don't want to change. Motivational interviewing and motivational enhancement therapies are ways to work with people um, so that the desire to change outweighs the ambivalence of not to change. It involves with helping, you know, in very intentional ways, um, helping people to talk about their problems in a way uh, they talk about change talk. So working with a client to visualize for themselves ways in which they can change and talk in those ways. And clients can literally talk themselves into the changes that they enact. So, mm-hmm. And how might that be uh, different than just telling somebody they need, they need to change? And I'm thinking about reactants, but I mean, how, how what are some other ways? Um, yeah. So, so people who do this kind of work, they talk about it as a scale. All right. And so the ambivalence is a scale and you're kind of like part of you wants to change and part of you doesn't want to change. Well, when you, uh, as the therapist come on, come down really hard on the change part, there's the natural, the scale will naturally try to balance out so that they give themselves more and more reasons why they should not do what you're saying. So, um, that, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of works on that principle and reactants, you know, kind of, uh, uh, reacting in an opposite way because we don't like what we're being told from someone is uh, a way that that functions. Mm-hmm. And and does reactance at all come into play with having adolescent kids or? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe even more so. Yeah. And, and one thing about uh, Craig's uh, weight loss journey was his... Um, his realization that he needed new clothes uh, lagged behind. So there was a period where his clothes were quite larger than his, uh, his frame. Yeah. But I actually felt good about it, even though. I <laughs> foolish. Uh, so thinking about uh, substance abuse treatment, I was just wondering how it might've changed um, since the past, because um, in, in the past there was this debate and it might still be ongoing in some areas where is substance use an actual med- a medical or psychological condition? Is it not how it should be treated? And I'm sure there's some people who were in treatment earlier on that um, might remember being uh, in a treatment that might not have been crafted the best way and they had a bad experience. So what were some pitfalls in substance use treatment before um, and how is it any different now? 
Well, I think uh, one of the big issues um, is we, we, we tended to think about, and I, I think even societally, we're, we're seeing changes in this, but we, we tended to think about substance use problems were due to some kind of moral weakness, you know, mm. or that's, you know, kind of like from a, a religious standpoint, like um, uh, sin or something, or, you know, a person is just weak-minded. There's something wrong about them. And uh, thinking on, on that has really changed a great deal. I, I, I think the um, AANA movement w was helpful in, in that mm -hmm. regard um, uh, in not, not stigmatizing uh, so much. But, uh, we, you know, there, there are some uh, AANA works for lots of people. And there's some research on there about how it works. And it tends to be uh, the support networks that are developed. But, um, uh, you know, moving from that moral weakness mo model to, you know, I, I mentioned those three paths, the internalizing, externalizing, and the contextual, really a fourth uh, path that we talk about in that chapter. And, and I should, you know, mention this student's name, give him a plug, Max Christensen. So um, uh, is a repeated use model. And, and that is where uh, the brain physiologically uh, changes uh, in response to the drug. So this is a different process than the, you know, kind of like the uh, physiological addiction uh, the body develops, but uh, this is where the brain is actually changed in ways, um, ways in which we get reinforcement and motivation are changed and become more geared toward, uh, you know, the drug use. So um, drugs you know, change our brains in fundamental ways. So that realization has been one. Also, you know, a lot of the stigmatization really, and I guess it goes along with the um, uh, moral weakness, but, um, you know, so, some of the not as beneficial, you know, uh, impacts of things like the, um, uh, AA and NA is, uh, you know, the, this idea that people have to be, you know, you know, 100% abstain from any kind of drug use for the rest of their lives, you know, is a lot of people will not sign up for that. And that's something that that has changed. And uh, I, I think that's a positive uh, benefit as well. So, so how, how has it changed exactly from this complete abstinence well, model? Ju just the idea that, um, you know, that substance use disorders are time limited, that, uh, you know, you can have achieve, you know, great progress in life uh, without total, you know, with and, and still, you know, uh, use drugs recreationally, um, you know, that, that kind of, you know, more of a harm reduction type of uh, model where we're looking at reducing the um, societal harms that come about through drug use. Um, so th these are, you know, more modern ways uh, of thinking that I, I think are helpful. Okay. And, you know, in this section, we've been really focusing on, okay, so the disorders here, how do we sort of undo it? How do we help people recover? Um, do, do you have any sort of thoughts on sort of like a primary response more? So how do we help people currently at these times of stress, not even get on the road to, uh, to addiction? Yeah. So you, you mentioned it earlier, coping. I mean, there, there's, yeah. um, you know, coping is a big, uh, way. I, I, I would say, you know, even though it's not ideal, find ways to connect with people, um, you know, even if it is virtual, um, you know, spend time each day doing something that, you know, brings you joy in life, you know, wh whatever that may be for you. Um, you know, invest in relationships, you know, it, it's, you know, as people are together more, conflict is just occurs because it mm -hmm. tends to occur more more frequently. But you know, finding ways to resolve that that conflict and 
I don't know, lo- looking for what, I mean, ways that I'm finding, you know, that, I, I mean, this has been tough for me in many ways and ways that I'm finding that help me are just accepting the fact that life is majorly altered mm-hmm. and, and that I can't, I just can't do some of the things that I used to really enjoy doing um, and, and accepting that, but also w- with the mindset of there's going to be an end to this. You know, I, I saw something really encouraging, um, you know, last night about a company that is, uh, has done the first safety trials on a, a vaccine mm-hmm. yes. um, and the results are positive, you know, um, you know, legit uh, treatment trials with therapies um, um, that are working. So there, there's, there's going to be a way out. You know, one of the people who I'm really like following almost religiously through this is, uh, are you familiar with Andy Slavitt? No, I'm not. Okay, so he's uh, the the former uh, under the Obama administration. He was uh, um, head of the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare. Mm. Um, And and so he knows a lot about uh, health policy. But he puts out a a Twitter thread each day that, you know, goes like uh, 20, you know, tweets deep on, you know, what he has learned that, for the day. And he, he's got this uh, catchphrase about, you know, we're going to get through this together. And, and it, it's simple, but I think it's helpful. And seeing, you know, as we see the uh, politicization of, of this along with everything else, you know, and the demonization of the other side, just taking a step back and thinking, okay, we're all in this together. We're suffering in different ways. And you know, how can we help each other get through this? So, um, you know, so, so the acceptance, you know, for me, um, you know, religion and connecting to like a, a higher power is something that's really meaningful. And like, for me, I found like I have a purpose in life. Like I'm not just being withheld, you know, from things I don't want to do, but actually me, uh, staying home is very often the loving thing because, you know, I, I am making a choice not to uh, possibly transmit the virus onto someone else and not mm-hmm. to be a carrier of that. So, you know, seeing in small ways that there's a purpose to, you know, um, you know, this prolonged um, uh, social distancing. So, and then, you know, I, and I, I think it's super um, uh, encouraging news that, you know, that we're getting about outdoor activities and that these done, you know, with reasonable modifications can, um, uh, and getting outside and doing stuff, especially this time of year. I mean, it's nice, you know, to get outside now. So that that can be, that being active um, uh, exercising can be really helpful in that regard as well. So, yeah. And, and, you know, the acceptance piece, uh, I, I think that that's big for me too. And a lot of times when people think uh, about acceptance, they think about it as like a, an easy uh, thing, thing to do. Like it's like this pot, like a very like posy easy thing to do, but acceptance is hard because it's, it's very easy mm-hmm. to accept things that are positive it's not so easy to accept things that are negative. So acceptance isn't an easy practice. It's actually, it's actually a hard practice. Um, another thing that, that I've been um, uh, working on is more of that mindfulness way of living, of taking it day yeah. by day and being here and now and trying to spend less time, you know, worrying about the future. Not that I shouldn't worry at all. I shouldn't think about it. Of, of course I should, but just trying to take my time to just be in the here and now and live my life as it is. Um, is and and enjoy it. Yes, I, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the behavioral that, activation the is what we call doing more activity in CBT. But yeah, of course, mm-hmm. uh, the the more the, the, very simply, the more pleasurable and positive activities you do, the better you feel. And so, as long as it's safe to do, uh, of course, in in the situation, whether that's inside or outside, that could help maintain or elevate mood. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, one thing that you had talked about um, when we were talking before this was um, 
styles of therapy that are not the traditional or the traditional in the room one-on-one mm. or family. Um, and you had given me some good reasons as to why uh, these other types of interventions and what, what they are. And so I was just hoping that you could speak on that as well. One of my you know, closest friends and colleagues uh, works for a, uh, um, an agency in New York called the Center on Addiction. And mm. uh, they have some really, uh, you know, some non-traditional ways of, um, of reaching people. And, and if you don't mind, I, I have some stuff I'd like to take a look at here. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, some of the services that they have available are uh, one-on-one support helpline. So a helpline that connects parents and caregivers uh, to a trained um, uh, specialist. So this is a 24-7, you know, contact that can be made there. Um, you know, the, uh, specialists are there to help, help the fam, you know, provide some support and help the, uh, families, um, you know, find answers from themselves. Uh, they have, uh, uh, text networks. So, um, uh, people who are either going through trouble themselves or let's say parent of someone who is having trouble can, um, uh, uh, be involved in these uh, text work, um, so text network. Uh, there's an online, there are online support communities, so where uh, people can um, uh, work with uh, trained parent coaches and other people who are going through similar uh, challenges in their lives, and they can get individual coaching as well. And so I, I think that these are just some really good um, uh, resources that are out there that people uh, can connect with. And I'll, I'll uh, provide you with some of this information, um, you know, so that y- your listeners can access these uh, uh, directly. Um, the uh, organization which they come from is called drugfree.org. So the uh, URL is HTTPS. So there's an S at the end there, HTTPS uh, colon slash slash drugfree.org. And so there's a link where you can find their other, their services available. Uh, the text network, you can join by texting word join to the number five five seven five three. Okay, great. And of course, I'll I'll include uh, these links in the organization and in the um, in the podcast uh, notes. Um, yeah. Oh, and I wanted to tell you, there's a speaking of podcasts. I listened to a really good one uh, yesterday. Very first episode was yesterday called In Recovery. And um, it's available through, uh, I I got it on Apple, uh, but the woman who's doing it has been, uh, she's a physician, been an addiction specialist for 20 years, Mm. had a really interesting um, uh, podcast yesterday about medication-assisted treatment for pregnant women, um, which is going to be a huge issue because um, if someone who is pregnant on opiates, they're going to have to take medications to be able to come off of that. So some of the challenges that are there, she was talking about how uh, some of these women have um, uh, basically uh, support advocates who can, you know, advocate for them in um, uh, getting different services that they need. So it's called In Recovery. Um, And I was really impressed. I'm going to listen to it every week. So it's, kind of like yours, it's given in a, a lay person's uh, level. So, okay. Yeah. And I could definitely link her, her podcast to the any, any way to help people get, you know, this information is, is, is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Not to drive any listeners away <laughs> from you. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so with those sort of resources that you were, that you were talking about, um, is that predominantly for substance use or can people use that for um, other problems as well? That is, uh, those are predominantly for substance use. Regarding these types of, you know, the the peer-to-peer support, the the texting uh, type platforms, is there any research on on the effectiveness or how it has been helpful? 
Yeah, there, there are uh, um, there are a few articles on the peer-to-peer networks. I mean, this is a very new area. It's mm. it's just that people haven't studied it. So there are are a few um, out there. There's more. Uh, you, you'll find things on teletherapy now, which you know, kind of like the you know, the broad generalization there is that teletherapy is as effective as face-to-face. Um, mm. uh, so th- there's um, a good emerging body of research there. Few studies out there on text-based applications, but yeah, that's uh, the research needs to catch up to uh, what people are doing. So, and I, I, you know, I'm not one of those that, you know, thinks that we need to study uh, these things in depth before we, mm-hmm. you know, actually take, make use of them. But I, I look forward in the next few years to seeing uh, more yeah. research coming out. And you had noted uh, when we had talked before, something specifically around dropout rates being lower, people um, coming to treatment more often. And I think it was with the, with the text-based platform. Am I remembering that correctly? Well, it's a, it's a way to improve access. So, you know, one of the things that has not changed um is that only about 10% of people in need of treatment actually get it. And so it's these mediums like this that uh, really help improve access. So it it kind of, um, uh, it's bringing the service to them. I mean, like we're seeing now happening all the time with teletherapy. I I mean, this there, there were, lots of people who needed this before uh, COVID came along, but this is really, you know, uh, really turbocharged, uh, that whole thing. So. Okay. Well, Craig, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think that this information was beyond valuable, uh, to people and people that are in need of, of understanding, uh, what's going on with substance use, uh, particularly during the COVID time. Um, you know, how people actually, uh, become, um, involved in substance use and also different ways that they could be Uh, treated for it and different, of course, resources in order to get that help. Okay. Well, great. I I enjoyed doing it, Jason, and it's nice to uh, connect with you virtually. Yep. And we'll keep in touch. All right.